This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Do we pass teen relationships off just as puppy love? And do we need to have more serious conversations with our teens about their first relationships? New data shows that nearly one third of Australian teenagers aged 18 to 19 have experienced intimate partner violence just in the past 12 months. The Australian Institute of Family Studies researchers found that healthy friendships and relationships with our parents decreases that risk. So what is a real teen relationship? What's the reality of a teen relationship and how do we help young people from the very beginnings of their relationships know what a healthy one looks like? Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning. Nick Healy joining you from ABC Shepparton. This is a big conversation, Nick, because it takes in everything from a healthy relationship consent, modelling a good relationship and accepting that relationships can start early, as confronting as that might be for parents or carers. Look, it also could not be a better time to be talking about this. I mean, you know, you look at the statistics and on an average year, uh, one woman a week is killed by a former or current partner. We've already well exceeded that. I mean, this is a year where some people are talking about a femicide epidemic. We had six women killed in a 10-day period just recently. Uh, What we can do when we start talking about those healthy relationships, about respect, about, you know, how to build that in 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 a way that is healthy early on, we can hopefully start changing those statistics because something needs to be done. And it can't just be a conversation around consent and schools talking about consent. It has to be a little bit of everything from the home, from the school, from peers as well. Peer-to-peer support, I think, is something that we're definitely going to discuss today. But that is an area that less and less funding is going into. Funding is being cut from youth workers, all aspects of peer-to-peer support. So sometimes you're not going to go to your mum or your dad or your carer or your auntie. You're not going to go to your GP to ask for sexual advice or for sexual health information, you're going to go to someone who looks and sounds and speaks like you. Well, that's what we want to say because sometimes you can't go to those people you mentioned because that's where you're seeing behaviour that you're trying to get away from. I mean, you know, we, we, we can't just say it has to happen in the home when the home is sometimes a place where those bad behaviours are most visible. Um, we need to have that holistic outlook on how we deal with those younger people because it's got to change. So if the Australian Bureau of Statistics estimates that 2.2 million adults have been victims of physical or sexual violence from a partner since the age of 15. That means that almost one in three Australian teens aged 18 to 19 will experience intimate partner violence. So how do we change that? How do we teach young people about what a healthy and respectful relationship looks like? How simple do you find it to talk to a young person in your life about what constitutes a healthy relationship. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Your co-host this morning, Nick Healy, joining you from ABC Shepparton as we pull apart what a healthy relationship looks like. Nick, you and I can't do that alone, so we've invited two incredible women into the studio. Nat Tenchich, you would know she's the former host of The Hookup on Triple J. She's also the producer of Life Matters on RN. Nat, a warm welcome to the Conversation Hour. Good to be here. And Nikita Stoker is a youth outreach worker with the Youth Holistic Outreach Program at Youth Projects. Nikita, a warm welcome into the studio. I know you've been a part of this program before, but lovely to meet you face to face. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. (laughs) There's already a text that's come in and it says, my mum's sex ed talk included making sure that my boyfriend cared about my enjoyment sexually as well as the basic need for contraception. I'm so grateful. She gave me books, she gave me resources, she gave me a safe person to talk to. My school did nothing beyond basic understandings of puberty and my friends were less lucky with their parentage and it really suffered. Now, this is always going to come down to, this is the school's responsibility. (laughs) Is it? Always the school's responsibility. (laughs) Look, I think it's really difficult for a lot of schools to broach the line of something that is as personal as young people's sexual experiences. Because a lot of different parents and different 
cultures have different lines when it comes to how much kids should be exposed to sex. But the reality is kids are having sex. They want to have sex. They're becoming sexual beings. A An air of sex positivity like we he- heard from that texter's parent, which is, oh, my goodness, just wow. amazing <laughs> to see and hear, yes, yes. is what's going to let people feel safe to call out things that they recognise aren't right with sex. A pleasure-focused approach means that we go, oh, okay, I'm not feeling good. There's something going on here. Instead of approaching sex with shame and secrecy and feeling like we can't talk about it. Now, how much are the schools responsible for this? Well, schools have a responsibility to at least provide a model outside of the home that is a little bit different or something that's a bit more, I guess, fact-based, right? Educational. Bit, that is educational, that we should be saying, okay, well, this is what we can or hold Or at least up give them resources. As a good yeah. relationship or give them resources indeed. So, yes, there's some responsibility here. Going back to when, you know, the sex education part of um, uh, my schooling went on, it was very much, you know, contraception was an interesting one to mention there. It was very much heterosexual and cis. Condom and it was about and when a, Yeah, when a mummy <laughs> loves a daddy down, very yeah, much. Is. You know, there's, there needs to be, in terms of that education, understanding that um, it's not going to be that way for every kid and they still deserve to learn about respectful relationships and safe sex no matter who they want to be with. Absolutely, yeah. And I think also, like, there's a separation, particularly just based on what I was dealing with at school and what I'm hearing now from our young people, is that it's very, like, biological in terms of, like, this is this is how sex works, this is how puberty works, this is hormones, whatever, and it's very separate to relationships and what a safe and respectful relationship looks like. And because it's scary for schools, like I said before, to teach people uh, that sex is fun. Yeah, and that's true, mm. and that's why people want to well, have how that parents push. react also well, yeah. to, to to that and this fear that we have that saying, well, actually, it's okay to want something pleasurable. It's well, like it's like we're scared of teaching about anything pleasurable. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we will speak to someone from the education department or, or the, within the education sector, I should say, a little later because you've got to find the right person to teach mm-hmm. that. How do you build that into the curriculum? Where does that information for the school come from as well? There has to be a resource for that teacher to draw on Nick. It's also a very fraught period for schools to be talking about that. We're seeing a lot of pushback uh, against kids uh, being taught in schools things that are not traditional relationships and I think it's been quite wild to see mm. some of that. Uh, some of the protests that are happening, teachers shouldn't be allowed to talk about this. Uh, I know, you know, we're importing a lot of that drama from America but it is coming here and we can't afford to have a whole generation of children left to the side. Nikesha, a lot of the work that you do is with pop-ups as well mm. because when we talk about being able to access information, I know the last time we spoke, we're talking about a rise of STIs within young people because there is just a fear and a lack of access to contraception. Mm. If you make it too hard for people to access or if you have to go down the formal route of going into uh, a pharmacy, especially if you're in a small town, mm. for example, you know the pharmacist, the pharmacist knows you folks before you even <laughs> get home. Your mum and dad know exactly what's going on. They, yeah. you know, there's de- there was debate around whether or not condoms should even be free in public toilets, and then kids are saying, "But I'd be too scared to use that public toilet in case people thought I was getting condoms." It all gets <laughs> so tricky, right? It does. Yeah. So you bring the information to the young people. They don't have to find an outreach service or a community centre of which you have, and they can. Yeah. But you go to them. Yes. Yeah, so, well, that's the whole model of outreach is that we meet young people where they're at, um, and if they can't access the normal services that they you know other people can then we can do that for them granted that we're not specialists in these areas but it is about providing information resources on different platforms that are like that young people are using you know buying a booklet and giving it to them isn't going to be the right kind of platform for a young person say same as an app or a website something like that um and also just like educating them on where they can go and what their rights are in terms of what they can access with parental consent without it that kind of thing and getting rid of that gray area to kind of help them know where to go when they want to go to it before we have a chat to pete who's in ballarat who's called 1300 222 774 nikita today's conversation 
is based around the fact that there was alarming statistics mm. around intimate partner violence at a really young age. Yeah. In the work that you do, in the pop-ups that you have and the young people that you spend time with, is that something that's being discussed? Is that something that has risen to the top in your work? Yeah, it's been a really big theme, particularly. So we work, work across two teams. So we have our Youth Northern Outreach team and our YHOP team, which is the team that I'm in, um, and it's been a really big ongoing conversation with young people. We work from 12 to 25 as well and are seeing the youngest kind of cohort come through in our referrals and we have a rise in young people identifying family and relationship issues as a barrier and family violence as a barrier as well. And that's only what's being reported, you know. Oftentimes what we're seeing is that these conversations are coming out through appointments and haven't been identified by the young person when they first started with this mm. as something that they're having trouble with or are going through um and it will be you know oh well the person that i'm dating you know rocked up to my work or blocked me and unblocked me to punish me and you're like well actually this isn't okay like what this is and that doesn't get discovered until that relationship is formed hence the importance of youth workers we come back to that (laughs) important conversation yeah and it's that's again it's a safe space to be able to talk about it but also knowing how to call it out in a way that is empathetic and is not judgmental in saying like hey this is not okay behavior and often you'll see their shoulders kind of relax and go like oh like I thought it was just me I thought I was being dramatic or oversensitive like it's that same minimizing like shame language that we're hearing from like 15 year olds talking about really not okay abusive behavior and labeling it as that rather than oh you know it's just a silly you know boy or girl or person whatever um that puppy love that puppy love yeah Yeah. which again demeans that the the people involved I mean you know they're they're not tiny children they deserve to have a lot of respect given to them but Nikita is this is this on the rise or is there the silver lining that those that age group is more willing to recognize that it's wrong call it out and report it I think that it's not necessarily that I feel like there's so much more education that is mm. out there, which is amazing. But still, you know, even though I was thinking before I came here today about the language that we use and that young people are using in terms of, you know, red flags instead of not okay behaviour. So I think that the rise of being aware, the rise of awareness is there and services and supports in some ways. But in terms of it getting, you know, more and more it's hard to tell like it's just hard to tell i I feel like with young people the thing is that it's you know and maybe you've noticed this Mm. as well is that they're so informed now yeah they know so much they know what trauma looks like they know what coercive Mm -hmm. relationships look like and they're very hypersensitive to it but the thing that they still lack that you can never replace is experience yeah they just will never have that it's inexperience and conversation not conversation confidence and self-esteem too like it's one thing to call it out and this is often the conversation that we have with young people that we're having these conversations with is if you were explaining what is going on to you um like if you're hearing that from a friend or your sister or your mum or someone would you think that that behavior was okay Mm. and that flips it a lot because the other thing that we forget when we're you know in teen relationships which by the way are so intense is that we don't kind of see <laughs> what's happening to us. And I've forgotten about that intensity yeah. as yeah. well because the whole time it's your entire world and yeah. you think that this person is it and they are that's who you're going to be with your entire life. You only trust them. You think your parents, mm-hmm. your carers, everyone don't get it, don't understand you. You are blinkered. Yeah, it they're is your intense. world. Like they're just totally. your world. Uh, even biologically, you're awash with hormones your body yeah. hasn't put yes. up with before. It, yeah. it just feels so sensitive. Um, on the phone line, we do have Pete in Ballarat. Pete, good morning. Yeah, good morning. And I think you've already touched on what I had called about, guys, but framing relationships in a just boy-girl thing is, mm. is something we need to be really mindful of. And I think of those kids that are same-sex attracted or non-binary or trans mm. and how they navigate this in, particularly in faith-based schools. I don't think we can leave it to school to have those discussions particularly in, in schools where, where it's it's almost still kind of taboo from that, that faith point of view. So it, it's, it's and, and young kids who grow up in, in households that are 
very predominantly faith-based and not going to be able to have yeah. those conversations with parents either. So That's right. And if, you, if you're questioning your sexuality and you're not sure and you go to, a, you know, a Catholic school and mm. different principles are being taught. Mm-hmm. Pete, thank you. Nikita, I know when we spoke about uh, healthy sex education mm. or even just sexual exploration and people coming to terms with their identity and maybe yeah. trying to figure out who they are and, and what their sexual future will look like, mm. in the pop-ups that you have, I mean, even educating yourself around what a healthy and safe sex life looks like. You can't just presume it's boy and girl. No, not at all. And it is creating that really inclusive and like I keep saying and I'll keep saying it forever because it's the most important thing is a safe space, right? So it's it's acknowledging that, you know, sex and relationships and, and sexual identity looks so different to each person and then creating a plethora of different information sources to then meet their their needs in whatever that may look like. And I think also being aware too, you know, if we're talking about same-sex relationships or, you know, or queer identifying relationships, the stigma and the stereotypes that go on with that, well, you know, like if you're in, um, you know, a relationship and there's two female identifying partners, is it then minimises, oh, you know, well, girls just don't, they don't use violence, they don't mm. use those things, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And then it, it snowballs even further because then they get pushed to the side again. Like it just continues marginalising if those safe spaces and and, you know, different types of wow. information aren't there. Gosh, I knew today <laughs> was going to be important, but <laughs> yeah. the but layers it, of it far out. It's incredibly important. Look, we've been talking so much about that education in schools mm. and what it means. I, th- I thought we'd get Alicia on the line because, uh, Alicia, you're actually a teacher working in sex education. Yes, I um Hello. I teach in the, um, in the area of sexuality, respectful relationships as part of the health education program within a school. And as you mentioned, we can have in a classroom multicultural kids, gender um, diverse kids, all sorts of different personalities. And it's so important to to teach what you can that's going to hope that the majority understand what you're alluding to because it's very hard to get specifics. And I often um, mention to the children or the students that I'm teaching that they really need to have further discussion at home about this because I might be not discussing the right thing within yeah. the classroom. And it's really, really challenging to then think, well, a parent might call and say, you've discussed this, that has nothing to do with my child. And I'm thinking, and do well, you get I'm, that? I'm, I'm, do I'm you get pushback? Crazy. Yes, you, you do, because parents often feel that it, the child may not be ready, but some of the children in the class are more than ready. Mm. So mm. age and stage is so important. And it's really hard in the current uh, situation with your average 13 or 14 year old could be have never spoken to a boy or a girl and others are sexually active. Some Do you think the parents are in same. denial a lot of the time? If you've got a 13 or a 14-year-old yep. and they're sexually active and the parents go, no, they're not, don't be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think they don't realise, particularly in a co-ed environment, how important it is to be discussing the, the pathway of respectful relationships. And they're, they're often, despite the fact that they've created the children, they're too hard, if they find it too hard to discuss how that happened. So... I, f- I find that really challenging in terms of being a teacher. Uh, but they often say, I'm so glad you're doing that. I'm thinking, but why can't you do this? <laughs> oh, so that's where, a problem. <laughs> where do you get your curriculum? Where do you get your information from, Alicia? So I, we tend to um, broadly, I've been teaching it for over 40 years, so I've probably got an enormous amount of experience. However... It's changed so much in that time. You know, teaching sexuality now is completely different mm-hmm. to the way we might have taught it in a, a Catholic single-sex school Good. when I first started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's, but the information comes from a variety of sources, and I also enjoy speaking to the students about where do you get your information? Yes. Oh, I've had the sex talk with mum and dad. They gave me this book to read. Um, so, you know, you get a bit of that, and you say, okay, well, let's extend that a bit further, and... and you know, just you also have to have a really good relationship and rapport with your class. Mm. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. You don't want to sit there telling them something and you don't hear anything back. We need to have robust discussions. Needless to say, there's no textbook. There's no assessments. It literally is just beautiful discussion, mm. relationships, um, not even pictures on the board or, or writing anything up. It's really just chats about what that might look like consent has become a huge issue over the last two or three years 
we teach that a lot and it's not just consent sexually it's just consent for everything really yeah. but, yes you know there's lots of yes, pump, absolutely. <laughs> Alicia, i feel like we could pick your brain forever can i just quick finally ask you how much do you discuss uh in your education programs and in class online pornography and how how much of that is a, an issue you know it's been a part of our lives forever we, now is there good porn bad porn and how much is that discussed we acknowledge that most of the students we're teaching in year seven and eight have been to some sort of porn site or seen something online and i if you acknowledge that straight away in front of a class they go you know i wouldn't ask them to put their hands up but <laughs> i assume that that's happened and then they then we just talk about the realistic expectations mm-hmm. of what sex looks like and what what the difference is between sexual acts that are for entertainment generally made for adults and what is real and what is not real so and they have to make they still have to make that yeah. decision yeah. themselves they're making a choice and parents also need to manage that in terms of what are they allowed to see when they're at home in their rooms or how do you know they're doing their homework by, you know, if yeah. they've got the doors closed and they've got all their devices in there? Um, so we need to make sure that they're learning that this, that the way to manage the whole technology thing that puts the entire world in the palm oh of their goodness. hand. And that's right. I mean, I need to be aware of that. Alicia, I feel like I need to hire you to come around to my house. <laughs> yeah. We need more teachers like you out there, yeah. Alicia. Incredible. And, and help me as well. Thank you so much for giving us a call. We really appreciate it. So many texts on this. We'll try and get through them as the program goes on. I'm 24. My mum and her friends, who I call my aunties, were invaluable resource for respectful, consensual and a wide-ranging sexual relationship advice. They helped me when my teen relationship turned sour and gave me um, the complete inadequacy and showed me the complete inadequacy of school education I consider myself very lucky that I had them. So how do we help young people form healthy and safe relationships? Those early relationships, those teen relationships Good morning, Rochelle Hunt here with you and Melbourne, Nick Healy joining you from ABC Shepparton. Nat Tenchich is with you as well. Formerly you would know her from the hookup on Triple J she's also the producer on Life Matters on RN and Nikita Stoker who's a youth outreach worker in in the studio as well as we try and pull apart what a healthy teen relationship looks like and who helps us teach them that is it just us as parents and carers is it teachers and where do we get that information from simon dewar is the director of partnerships at real schools he's also an ex-principal at a regional high school simon the school's responsibility here is really tricky lots of tech saying well my public school started to teach things that we don't believe Mm. in and aren't sort of online with our religious beliefs and lots of people saying the school's falling behind. Is it the school's responsibility to teach all of this? Good morning, Rochelle, and uh, and thanks for having me on and uh, thanks for talking about this issue because uh, it's certainly something that that schools are navigating at the moment and trying to get that balance right to support families is often a little tricky. Um, I think schools are mostly doing a pretty good job and the concerning part is that we're still seeing these trends that we're looking at talking about today. And when it comes to the school's responsibility, yeah, we are one part of the puzzle in schools, but there's certainly a number of other pieces of that puzzle that need to fall into place, such as the family, uh, the community on a whole, our sporting clubs, our community clubs, all of those different opportunities that young people get to build relationships. Um, there's a chance for us to be able to contribute to what that healthy relationship looks like. Um, Simon, Simon sorry, yeah, just quickly, you said that they're doing a pretty good job, but what yeah. does need to change in schools to make it a very good job? And, or, yeah. or could it ever be taken up to that level? Yeah, I think it could. It, it absolutely could. So where schools are at the moment, in particular government schools, so there's respectful relationships education and there's consent education, which are programs that schools have available to them to be able to support the students through content. And like you've picked up earlier, there's one part of it, which is the content, but then in some ways, the, the next part of it, which takes it from the, the pretty good to the exceptionally good, is the culture that the school creates around talking about relationships mm. and about how our young people are supported to know what a healthy relationship is, but also when they step into a relationship that's not so healthy, how do they deal with that? So how do we work through that as a learning experience so that we go on to see young people who are demonstrating these healthy relationships later in life? 
And it's not just about relationships, like romantic relationships either, is it, Simon? Like, it's important to model that with relationships with uh, their classmates, friendship, like friendships, but also uh, teachers as well. Mm. How do you talk to teachers about teaching autonomy and consent in contexts that aren't necessarily romantic, sexual or relationship based? Absolutely. And I think this is a really important point. And I pick up on some of the early conversation that you started with it. For, for us as adults, most of our thinking of this relationship piece goes back to our time in schools mm. and around, for a better term, sexual education. What we know now is that there's a lot more that we can help our young people understand about a healthy relationship at a much earlier age. And we've got some competing demands. We've got some challenges. Mm. So we've got social media where our young people are getting their phone in their hand at a much earlier age and they're getting exposed to content that then normalises unhealthy relationships. Mm. So how do we help our young people to be able to navigate that when they're seeing this hundreds of times per day and then we're talking about them and supporting them on the other side, which is this is what a healthy relationship looks like. And it comes a lot back to how we model those relationships in schools and then how we, as parents, get on the same page as our school. And I think there's a really important mm. role there for parents. Well, that's easier said than done as well. And, and Because, again, it will depend on that parent's circumstance, their religious beliefs, their cultural beliefs, whether or not they're in a healthy relationship as well. Simon, we know you're busy, so just finally, I'm I'm sorry to to keep you, but when we look at how young relationships are starting, you know, Nikita, you were talking about 12 and 13 and people and the sexual ed uh, teacher that rang in before was saying that lots of kids are sexually active from as young as 13. And at first I was a bit shocked by that, right? But then I thought back to year seven because you're probably 13 14 Mm. and there were heaps of girls and boys that were sexually active and i'm talking then back in the that would have been the 80s or whatever it was but are kids becoming more sexually active do you believe at a younger age or is that just an old person's view and like you said just looking back on well we were different in our day (laughs) It's a really good question and uh, to give you the exact answer, I don't know that answer. But what we do know is that the way that our young people are conducting relationships, not just sexual relationships, um, is concerning at a much younger age. And what we want to be able to do and just picking up on that point around that difference even that we talk about with family expectations, I think as families we'd all have, no matter what our cultural beliefs are, an expectation that being in just a healthy, friendly relationship is is a really good step. And then I do take your point around that next level that sometimes becomes the challenge for schools. Um, I think what we can talk about is is how we create that culture within our schools and within our community where what is respect and how do we treat that well for the other people involved. Simon, thank you so much. We know how busy you are. We really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Simon Dewar, Director of Partnerships at Real Schools, also former principal at a regional high school. And, and Nat, if I'm right, you've actually authored some of these resources on consent, on respectful relationships for secondary students. Yeah, I have actually. I, I did a big project with a local Australian pu- uh, publisher working on a syllabus, and I'm not in the classroom, so it was interesting and a challenge because I wonder how teachers are, are going with <laughs> some of this. Material, but you what can I thank or blame her later. <laughs> Honestly, please do get in my uh, inbox. I'd love to hear how it's all going. Um, but one of the challenges was creating resources for years seven, eight, younger people who. Mm you know, you're a teacher and you're not necessarily feeling comfortable with the sexual nature of this content with that age group. So how do you teach the basics of consent, respectful relationship education at that age? And I've heard some incredible things about how this is being taught even at ages of three, four, five years old, where it's Mm. like, we are teaching consent now and bodily autonomy in a way where we go, hey, grandma has to ask you if If you you can have a hug or something. Like, And I think even though we sort of, uh, it it feels against nature and we kind of bristle at that and go, what do you mean? She's always allowed to have hugs. It's about teaching kids that they are in control of their bodies. And that's why I wanted to sort of ask Simon about also the relationship with teachers and ensuring that kids feel safe to be able to say, hey, no, I... This is what I want to do. This is what I feel comfortable with so that they can replicate that Mm. with every relationship that they have. It's so important that they can stand up and, you know, assert themselves and what they're comfortable with and their boundaries. And that's what I was trying to, you know, put into those resources. Joan's given us a call. Good morning, Joan. Good morning. What did you want to say? 
this is just so alien to me. I'm in my late 80s and all this talk, sex at uh, 12, 13 or uh, younger. And that we, in our days, we had to stay virgins until we got married. Mm. And that was big, long life. And then uh, nothing mentioned at school. Even when I went away to uh, college in Melbourne, the only sex education we had then was in the dark, in the blue room. And we were told, don't wear red because it inflames a man's passions. And don't wear patent leather shoes because they could see your knickers reflected in it. <laughs> and that's the sex education we got. Wow. So aren't these kids so lucky having there, but... I really think that, you know, sort of it's too young. (laughs) There is a huge difference, too, between making love and having sex. There's a big difference there. Nothing's ever been mentioned about that. But, yes, yep. Anyway, good luck to oh, everybody. Oh, Joan, thank you. Thank <laughs> Good luck. And look, I mean, the idea that it has changed and progressed when, you know, Joan says they weren't allowed to wear patent leather shoes because they're so shiny, you could see your knickers. Wild. Absolutely. And and I think that's the important thing that we're trying to break down in modern sex and relationship education now, that it's not, uh, you know, a girl's responsibility to be less tantalising, yeah. less attractive or whatever to tempt, um, you know, to tempt a boy. It's about everybody, um, you know, setting their boundaries and being in control of themselves and communicating when they're interested in someone and having respect for a no. In fact, saying thank you for your no, as one of my favourite sexologists loves to say, it's about changing that culture. And so when I was developing my sex education resources, one of the biggest talks I gave with teachers was it's not about teaching, you know, girls how to be safe, girls how to call things Mm -hmm. out, girls how Mm -hmm. to fight back. It's about teaching boys how to ask, how to, you know, respect the other person as their own person. You know, we're talking specifically heterosexual relationships there, but that is where a a huge amount of that power dynamic plays out. And it's important to talk to boys and say, we need to target your entitlement in this equation. Nikita, where do you get your resources from? And your, I mean, because the role that you play as a youth outreach worker, it's so, I cannot, I am so passionate about peer-to-peer support and people who look and sound and act like you being some of the strongest allies you can have in your life. And I think we should be uh, throwing more money and resources to youth outreach programs. How do you get the information and support that you need we i mean us as a team and our and our culture is based on like getting involved in the most up-to-date training knowing like keeping up to date with our resources on who what services provide like relationships australia is a really big one that we use youth law we attended a really awesome training not that long ago on affirmative consent and um you know the laws that have changed since the first of july so that we then are up to date and current with what is going on and, and then on top of it you're up to date with i guess where all the other education yes. is coming from yeah. and who's on social media and who's pushing what yeah how do you keep opinions like who was the dude you mentioned off air we were talking about andrew tate yeah yeah. i think you know it does really concern me when we look at young men this rise of a Mm. role model that Mm. i think even 10 15 years ago would have seemed absolutely shocking seems to be a bit more de-regard yeah so how do you get around it's Again, it's being like we're not there to push our views and opinions on our young people. Like that is not the point of our job. It is to listen to what they have to say and maybe it's planting a seed in like, oh, well, that doesn't really align with your values in the way that you're behaving like that. So that's a really big thing is just kind of having open communication but then still sort of adding little bits and pieces around like ways that they can reflect on their behaviour but still also calling it out if we're seeing that something is not okay. If we're talking to a young person that is behaving inappropriately, then maybe that's something that we broach in a gentle way, in still in like an understanding way without, you know, putting them down or belittling them, but still keeping that conversation going. Uh, I'd like to say too on the Andrew Tate thing is that mm. I think one thing we should think about is that we find him so shocking because of how much progress we've made. Like I think yeah. we need to And there'll always be another him, you. right? We use him almost in oh, a collective yeah. term. That, that yep. feeling, that, that opinion, that feeling will always, um, hopefully it won't always be mm. there, but that used to be so much more culturally well, it was part, just like normal, normal. 
daytime, like um, evening TV shows. Absolutely, with all of these, like, rom-coms, all things. of this. Yeah, you know? it was normalised behaviour. It just wasn't so like shocking. And you're right, it's exactly. such a contrast now. So, but we're never going to get rid of that, and it's mm. being realistic. Like we can't. It's the same argument as we can't stop young people from watching pornography. We can't stop young people from accessing this stuff. It's not taking it all away because it's just not realistic. It's adding information around it to challenge it in a way that is not confronting and is not judgmental or shaming because if you shame someone then how likely are they going to be to listen to you when they're already shut down absolutely yeah i wanted to circle back to something about these conversations you know with younger people being culturally appropriate Mm. because you you look at the numbers we know that first nations women are more likely to experience violence same goes for migrant refugee backgrounds Mm. how do we make sure that the conversations happening in school or in pop-ups or wherever they are have that a cultural a culturally appropriate and understood Mm. I mean, I think this is a hard one because I'm a well, more white woman. Like, yeah, so same, same. I, I, I don't know how to go into a community and say like what's culturally appropriate and how should you be broaching these things that also line up with your particular values around you know, be it, uh, you know, sexuality, modesty, appropriate ages for things, and the like. And I think that's a really difficult kind of line to toe. I think what we have to teach, and it comes back to the consent and the respect side of things, right, that that is universal, or yeah. at least it should be. No, no, it is. It's a human, like, you know, the Declaration of Human Rights. It was drilled into me when I was studying <laughs> community services, right? You have a right to freedom and a right to be safe from violence. Like, that is a yeah. baseline human right. And the amount of signatories, you know, of all of these cultures that say, yes, we agree to that and yeah. we agree to that principle as well. So it's the fact that it's like, I am respected as an autonomous mm-hmm. human being. I'm allowed to set boundaries. I'm allowed to make decisions. Uh, and that is, you know, whether or not we're talking about the, the meat of and mechanics of yeah. sex in a relationship. That takes courage, that, though. That's terrifying. That set. takes courage. Yeah. My girlfriend and yeah. I were only discussing and reflecting as her daughter gets older, reflecting on when you're in those early relationships, how easy it is to find yourself in a situation where you go, I don't know if I feel comfortable here and I'm not sure how to get out of it or if I have the confidence to get out of it. It takes a certain level of courage and I don't know, maybe you get used to it. The strength builds as you learn to say no or I'm Absolutely not comfortable at the beginning. Absolutely, it does. And yeah. Oh, I, I will, Nikita, I think you'd agree, right? This is like, it's part of being a teenager, right? Like your identity is not fully baked yet and no, you are all trying on the people to people around you yeah and so you're trying to work out where you fit and mm-hmm. confidence is hard to find because yes. you're like oh everyone says i should be in a relationship yeah. and i'm a loser if i'm not or maybe i should stay and that's okay mm-hmm. and oh everyone thinks this person's really that i'm with is really cool even if they're always checking my text messages like yeah, yeah. is that chill yeah. or not and like this is you like don't know normalizing it too so you've got peer pressure you've got you know if you're in a peer kind of group that maybe normalises a lot of that behaviour where, you know, people are not behaving appropriately, people are, you know, we we use phone and, like, digital coercion as an example, Mm. and then you add, you know, this person's having sex and comparing yourself to the other person, and is that right? It's so hard. And then you've got the added fear of if I speak up and say that someone, you know, say the person that everyone thinks is really hot has done something that's not okay... Am I going to be ostracised? Am I going to be kind of like exiled from the friendship group? And when you, in those years, the idea of not having your friends around you is horrible. Like that is the most terrifying thing in your universe at the time is not being liked by the people that you like. Absolutely. It it is a genuinely existential threat because, you know, where you fit in society at that point is your existence. Mm -hmm. And, you know... it's not just about what your peer group is saying too, but if you are coming from a family that normalises those yeah. sort of controlling behaviours, you don't know, you don't have the context to say, I'm I'm wanting to break out from that. And that's why I think making sure that we have this education, it can't just be left to the home, it can't just be left to the schools, mm-hmm. it has to be more holistic because there can't only be one place that's the appropriate place to get it. Good morning, Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Nick Healy joining you from ABC Shepparton. And in the studio, Nat Tenchich, the former host of The Hookup on Triple J and now the producer of Life Matters on RN. And Nikita Stoker, who's a youth outreach worker. As we look at what a healthy teen relationship 
looks like. And the reason we're doing that is because some alarming statistics have come out from multiple resources now, credible resources that Mm. show there is a rising number of intimate partner violence in those who are teens, those who are 18 to 19 years of age. So we can't be passing these early relationships off as puppy love. We need to really look at what they're doing and understand and not be naive I think too Nick in a lot of these conversations or be afraid to go there because they're doing it anyway. I think that is part of that really big fear we think you know oh they'll grow out of it something will change or don't have that conversation or I'm not the right person to it has to start I mean we we know how bad it can get when we we leave this to go it's been you know, it's this month, 37 years ago, um, my sister was murdered by her partner. You know, this is, we're still looking at these statistics. I would love to say in nearly 40 decades something's changed, but I don't think it has. And that's why conversations like today are so important. Anne Atchison is from Sexual Health Victoria. She's the Acting Schools and Community Manager. And it's so important to have conversations like this, to admit to ourselves maybe that we don't know, we aren't resourced with the information that we need, to have uncomfortable conversations with our nephews, our nieces and our children. Are we keeping on top of this, do you think, as a society? Thanks for having me on. Um, no, we're not really keeping on top of it as much as we would like to. We really advocate for a whole school approach, which does involve parents and community and school leaders and school educators um, to really get messages to young people effectively. Uh, But we know it's really delivered in a piecemeal way in secondary schools and primary schools as well. Um, So we can be doing more. We can engage parents and carers more in this conversation and help them have conversations at home, not just about sex and sexual intercourse and sexual health risk and consent, but their online experiences as well because that might be why they're, uh, where they're first exploring their sexuality. And obviously you've got a disparate level of groups there all trying to work together. Where do we start bringing it together? And are you seeing pushback from, say, parents thinking that this should be a, a school thing? Um, it, it's always that conversation and that tension between is this education or is this parenting? Mm. We would say it's both. Um, mm. We know from research that relationships and sexuality education is actually really well supported in schools, that parents and carers are supportive of a really broad range of topics being introduced to their young people. In Victoria, um, we have the Respectful Relationships Curriculum. Uh, We also have guidance from the department saying that sexuality and consent education is compulsory. It's mandated from foundation to year 12. So there is a department instruction for it to be in schools uh, but it's a really sensitive thing and sometimes it depends on the skill and the competence of the educators within the school to deliver effectively and generally uh, so is, it, is it generally a, a teacher like we all were talking off air so, you know either the whoever can do it and generally it's the PE teacher or <laughs> someone else that's been lumped with this on the side or a specialist brought yeah. in to help it is um it's part of the health curriculum um, so that's why it often does fall to the health and PE teacher who are also mandated to do a whole lot of stuff, including keeping our kids active and safe and healthy and out and about and doing sport. So they're focusing on that and it often gets dropped off or sent off to another classroom teacher or an advisory group. So who does it is really important because they need to feel confident with delivering the education and make everyone feel safe in the space. Why is it being devalued that way? It's time pressure, partly from health and PE teachers, from school curriculum. It's really crowded. We hear that from teachers all the time that there is too much to deliver. Um, Particularly at the moment, there's a teacher shortage in Victoria. So they're struggling to complete just their regular schoolwork and this is seen as extra or, as we said, potentially parenting and not their problem. Um, So finding time for it is, is difficult for schools. This is a message that's sort of to the side a little bit, but it's important. And I know we've done an entire conversation hour on this, of which Nikita was a, a part of it. But this message, it says, how strange. You've got an entire think tank talking about sexualizing relationships, including teens, but not one remark about STDs. We also know there's been a rise of STDs mm-hmm. in young people as well. But again, that comes back to access to things like contraceptions and conversations as well. When we're talking about 
healthy relationships, healthy sexual relationships, Anne, we need to talk about safe sex, don't we? Absolutely. And it's not especially a part of the respectful relationships curriculum. So schools in part might feel they're delivering quality sexuality education, but missing that key part about sexual health. Um, so absolutely young people need information about that and from lots of sources and at lots of times in their school experience because if it's a condom session once in year seven, they might have missed it and it doesn't come up again. Um, so repeating ideas, making sure young people have access across their whole school experience. Anne Atchison, thank you so much. Um, Anne is uh, with Sexual Health Vic, Acting Schools and Community Manager. I think that's a really important part about making it not just the one day that we talk about consent, respect or sexual health. Look, on the phone line, Tamara in Yarraville, and Tamara, you think we need to change how we frame conversations around sex? Um, Look, I I think having conversations around um, sex and consent obviously are incredibly important and valuable and it's great that it's happening in schools but I think that sometimes these conversations do continue to um, this notion that sex is something that boys do to girls and girls have to get consent from boys and I I just feel like that in some ways perpetuating a problematic Mm. paradigm and that in fact what we should be talking about is consent we should be from one another, boys, girls, otherwise, or whatever, we should be um, uh, reframing it right from the from yeah, the beginning. It should be yeah. enthusiastic consent from one another. Yeah, and, and the, the, Tamara, you're so you're so correct on that too. And you know, when I was working on some of these resources, we asked, uh, you know, uh, a, there was a girls' school that I was working with. They did a survey, and a lot of young girls said, "Oh, I want to learn about how to protect myself and the like." It showed that they've also already really internalized that feeling of they need to be combative. Yeah, combative Mm. and going into sex as if they're going into a fight. And it's like, no, it really needs to be, I completely agree with you, reframed about something that we commit to together, that we enjoy together, and we're both Mm. equal parties in together. 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 It's not like, oh, this is my responsibility. And now, Mm. like, I'm aware that I'm, you know, responsible for looking after myself. So this is all on me to fix this and all on me to address this not the other person in any case like it is wild that language of just like this is on me and if something happens it's because I haven't done the right thing and something that is like I I give or is taken from me rather than something like we want to do together for each other yeah it really strikes me, remembering back to sex ed when I was in primary school, that we were very deliberately divided into mm-hmm. boys and girls to mm-hmm. go and have entirely... You had sex ed in primary school? We did, we Must did. I remember. Didn't. So did uh, I, look, actually. And certainly, yeah, I'll yeah. tell you this, it was all about the mechanics. There was never a sense that anyone might actually do it because they were enjoying it. because, <laughs> you know, mummy and daddy wanted a baby. But it was all... There were two totally different conversations yeah. and there was this real sort of like, oh my God, what did they get to it? Like, oh, wow. It felt almost salacious knowing that it had been divided it was a very weird way to do it. Like, do people, do young people take consent education, sex education at school seriously? Like, or do they walk away and go, that was really helpful? Or do they come out and just laugh their asses off? Look, I'm not in schools seeing like the, the outcome from it, but realistically, our young people are getting their information from other places. But yeah. I think the other really important thing too here is that we're talking about like consent in terms of in uh, like sexual engagement. Sorry, I've lost my words, but having yeah. sex and sexual actions. Um, but if you've got, say, the foundations of understanding sex and consent now and affirmative consent and what that looks like, but then you're in a peer group where, you know, people are hitting one another or punching one another or like taking things or treating one another with disrespect and that unhealthy relationship isn't happening there then still some of that behaviour is going to be normalised in relationships. That's that friendship you're saying it's not just about a sexual relationship. Exactly. You have to model this in every single relationship that you are a part of. You have autonomy, you have boundaries, Mm. but you also respect other people that, you know, they are also a person that you treat the way you would want to be treated. Don't let those power dynamics play a role. And I think that's the, the thing that sort of leaves when it comes to sex is we don't get taught that our partner is somebody who is 
and equal to us and something yeah. we should respect. Because that's not how it feels when you're 15. <laughs> no, yeah. hell no. Exactly. And speaking of being 15 or younger, and one thing we yeah. haven't gone into a lot today, maybe it's a whole other conversation now, Nick, and you touched on this earlier, <laughs> is that our hormones, right, mm. are going bananas and yeah. you can't necessarily control your hormones. You don't even recognise, as a woman that's perimenopausal, right, I'm going through the other end <laughs> of hormones at the moment and sometimes every now and then you go, hang on a second, maybe that was just my hormones, right, because I've got age on my side to recognise what's a hormonal frustration or feeling yeah. and what is just normal, like, no, what that is wrong. Yeah, there's a lot of excitement, you know, there's a lot of so hot-bloodedness. <laughs> You're really horny, okay? Like, yeah. it does <laughs> It happens, okay? Just say it out loud. Yes. But I think the thing that we don't say is that that is the reality and, like, lots of young people want to have sex because they're horny and it's fun. Yeah. And we keep treating sex like this, you know, that it's just for babies or it's this thing you have to wait or it's this thing that, oh, no, 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 you can't have it. It's like... Let's just let's just address the elephant in the room, yeah. shall we? And if we're treating it like that, then maybe it's something that we can sign on to together for enjoyment's sake. Yeah. When it comes to the serious side of this, which is why we started today's conversation, is that we are seeing an alarming rate of intimate partner violence in teenagers. Mm. Do teenagers know where to go for help? And we know a lot of the time that if you go to police, if you're feeling like mm. you're being stalked or whatever it may be, that it's not taken seriously... Do people know where to go to get real help, do you think? To an extent, I think that there is also, and what our teams have been seeing is a really big gap in accessibility in terms of young people that are under the age of 16 and need mum or dad or, you know, family consent, parental or guardian consent to access services that are based around family violence responsiveness and support. So if you, you know, say, for example, you've got a young person who's in a family where family violence is being perpetrated already and may be victim survivor to it within their own relationship, but then also in a family dynamic, how do they then access those services? Like it is so tricky. And then, you know, it's kind of other youth services filling gaps in terms of information Mm. and other supports and providing that stuff without being a specialist service because there is that gap there. I might take this opportunity to give some of those numbers though that are there and are a resource for people. Of course, there's always 1-800-RESPECT. Now that is free. It's 24 hours a day. It is seven days a week and it's there to support people that are impacted by family or sexual violence. Speaking of people under the age of 16, I can say hand on heart that Kids Helpline is incredible and we've had the CEO on this program and their dedication to what they do at Kids Helpline is amazing. And that's one eight hundred double five one eight hundred. So you can be up to the age of 25 yes. to call Kids Helpline. And they're so great. So stick that number in your phone, one eight hundred double five one eight hundred. And there's always Safe Steps, which is a women's and children's crisis service, which is one eight hundred zero one five one double eight. I feel like just even today's conversation, I've learned a lot as a parent. You know, my daughter's <laughs> 10. So I'm like two seconds away Mm. from needing to have... I mean, I'm already having to navigate friendships Mm. and what a healthy friendship looks like and they're tricky conversations to have because if you can notice that one friend is maybe being a little bit of a bully or whatever it is, you don't want to insult that friend because they love that person. being the mean mum too. I remember my mum used to call them out and I'd be like, how dare you? Like, like you just would. (laughs) Reflection, she was bang on. Exactly, right? I don't want... That's where where we're at and then that sets it up for down track i guess it's like how, how do you make them realize that something is is going on here you know if you point out the behavior of a friend or a, or a partner or yeah. a boyfriend and go how does that make you feel mm-hmm. like what what's happening in your gut when they do that like or flip it positive yeah. like what what is a nice what is a positive relationship to you like yeah. what what yeah. does that look like what does their actions look like what is their behaviors what do those conversations look like so that they're already reflecting on it but it's not coming from a negative perspective it's like well here's what you believe that should look like so how is that actually fitting into what your experience is and we all need help and guidance right oh, and, yeah. and it changes constantly it's not just one conversation they're constant conversations and then we need to have conversations with other people yeah. to get that information that we need so it's evolving all the time communication and perspective we need to be able to see where the other people are going we need to understand them we need to talk about where we're at i mean that's how that's the only way it goes forward a huge thank you to the two of you for coming in today and just you know i guess opening our eyes a little bit to the reality 
of what's happening and the conversations that we need to have. Nat Tenchich, former host of Hookup on Triple J and, of course, producer of Life Matters here on RN. Thank you. Nikita Stoker, thank you. Let's get you back in another time soon. Youth Outreach (laughs) Worker with the Youth Holistic Outreach Program at Youth Projects. Nick Healy, as always, mate, thank you. My pleasure.